Hey everyone, I'm Chad Grills, the CEO and founder of Mission.org, and welcome to Investing Week here on Mission Daily. Thanks for listening, and today's episode is brought to you by us at Mission.org. If you're not getting our newsletter yet, you need to. It's incredible, it's curated with love, kindness, and care by our incredible team here at The Mission. Sign up at Mission.org, and we'll see you on the inside. Hey there, welcome back to another episode of The Mission Daily. This is Stephanie Postles and joined by Chad Grills. And today we are continuing our ongoing session of Investing Theme Week. Yeah, and today we're talking about investing in your work. So whether you own a business or starting a business, have a side hustle or working for a business startup, small business, large at a technology company, it really doesn't matter. The principles of capital allocation and how you want to think about investing are pretty much the same. And a lot of this week is inspired by the book, The Outsiders, and we're going to revisit, actually not revisit because we haven't even talked about it yet, one section of that book that introduces what for me was a paradigm shift from how I used to think about business and CEOs and what constituted a good CEO from a financial standpoint versus what constitutes everything else. And uh, if you're interested in principles to apply to your business life, this is going to be the episode for you. And like Chad said, business life can mean your own business or working for a business. So, I mean, my background, I've worked for government mortgage companies. I've worked for technology businesses. I've worked in finance. I've worked in economics, engineering, done it all. And I think this is going to be particularly helpful to people who are looking for how to invest in working at a company or your own company. It can apply to all of that. So I'm excited. Same. So let's start off with a quote by the most well-known capital allocator of all time, Warren Buffett. All right. The quote by Warren Buffett is, it's almost impossible to overpay the truly extraordinary CEO, but the species is rare. So that is a quote that triggers some intense emotions amongst a lot of different people. And the truly extraordinary though, that that is the qualifier that we need to drill in on here because the truly extraordinary CEO who can lead a company for a very long time and perhaps set a company up for centuries of growth and uh, life and uh, a great health span is uh, rare to the point where Warren Buffett slides in here that he basically says they're a different species of person. And Buffett has a lot of truisms, a lot of big lines, but I don't think he exaggerates too much. And the difference basically in a person who can allocate capital at a rate above 20% compounded annually basically doesn't exist. So if you can do that in whatever small domain, niche, specialty, your industry, your savings, your nest egg, or for your employer as part of your job, and if you can measure this and prove it, you will always have a job. You will have people throwing capital your way. And as a business owner, this is your job. And this reading the outsiders and viewing finance in a whole new way was such a game changer for me because I realized, wait a minute, my job is really easy. My job is to first and foremost, act as a capital allocator, measure that, and then quantify it and have that quantified by an outside expert, i.e. our accountants. And now that I have a full year's track record of that, I can go into year two knowing exactly what I need to do in order to fall 
well north of the 20% compounded annually. Um, because once you pass that territory, you're in rarefied air. You're in a place where people are going to come to you with the opportunities. Because in the next two episodes, we're talking about how to talk to investors and some of the questions that you want to be asking yourself, asking investors, and generally just thinking about when you're picking capital partners. And you can't encounter those questions until you're first very aligned and centered on the one metric that they're going to care about more than any other. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So there's another great quote from Bill Parcells who says, you are what your record says you are. And for better or worse, it would be wonderful if we could quantify caring, love, affection, flourishing, and, and everything like that. And in a way you can, you can worry about all those things and you can incorporate caring about them in your business and doing things about them after you get the capital allocation part correct and very correct because for better or worse, we can't get to those higher level aspirations until we first ensure that the money side is right of a business. All right. So let's back up a few steps. I feel like you're diving already into this episode. Let's maybe break it into two parts, investing in your work, if you're working in a job somewhere and investing in your business. Yeah. So you've already kind of started talking about investing in your business. And I think it's really good to think about what you need to do to get to that next stage of business. Like you said, year one versus year two, how to think about like, look at where you're allocating your resources to see what's going to compound to be able to feel comfortable in year two and not be in as much of a stress mode of like, what do I have to do? Like you kind of know. What are some more ideas about how you should be thinking about investing in your business to really get past that first year stage? At your business or when, when you're at a business? Let's do at your business first because you've already kind of touched on that. Okay, sure. So if you have a business or if you have a side hustle, there are the five different checkpoints that we went over earlier, the five different ways to deploy capital. So you have a couple choices. You can invest in existing operations. That could include R&D. That could basically include anything that is producing for the business. So if you have discovered that getting leads costs you X amount of money and you can reduce your cost of acquisition for each customer by investing X amount, you know, you want to zero in on that opportunity. You want to explore that because if you can get your CAC, your cost to acquire a customer down and the lifetime value of each customer up, these are great, great areas to invest in. How do you improve those numbers? How do you track them? How do you quantify them better? That's really like the place to start because once you get those numbers to a predictable place, that's generally the first place where you want to consider investing. After that, it's the product. And most people might disagree with that. That's fine. People like Bill Gates don't disagree. People like Bill Gates at Microsoft and some of the most successful capital allocators of all time have a pretty clear track record of selling promises and then figuring out how to deliver them. That's actually a uh, verbatim quote <laughs> from the Microsoft team. Mm. We're in the business and we've always been in the business of selling promises and then figuring out how to fulfill them. And a lot of people think, oh, no, no, no. Microsoft was a, uh, a software business or a product business. Nope. They so started an, about with selling promises. What's an example? What did they promise that then they had to figure out how to deliver? Everything. Uh, every single thing that they delivered. So they didn't have an operating system to start with. They went out and licensed it. They did deliver some different products and operating systems for their customers, but it was always a matter of let's agree on the price and make sure that the economics work for both of us. And then we'll, we'll get to building it. And which I think is a great, a great philosophy because until you run the numbers and until you're entering a partnership where both sides agree, this makes sense for us. We would be happy with this outcome. 
why would you do work? That's why, kind of why flipping the Silicon Valley like product market fit type model where it's like keep building until you know you find a fit until you find someone who likes your product right. instead don't, it's don't like build. Work talk about agreement. someone who will buy something from you first and then figure out the best way to build it and to get farther ahead from your competitors who maybe already are building it but why not find the buyer first interesting yeah, yeah definitely and um just just a, a small thing to point out too competitors is a word that i want to completely remove from people's lexicon like you do not have competitors there are going to be people who copy you or who knock you off there's always going to be aggressive behavior from people who want to take from you without adequate compensation. And that's a separate topic. You know, we can, we can talk about later, but generally there isn't any competition. It's just yourself. It's just, are you obsessed with customers? Are you obsessed with what you're doing? Do you like it? Is it energizing for you? And do you allocate capital? Well, outside of that, there are not competitors. And a lot of people will try to nudge you into the territory where you're thinking, oh, this business is like yours. And that is that's a trap. That is a very, very limiting trap and you have to avoid it. So the second thing we're going to be talking about here is the second way to deploy capital, which is acquiring other businesses. So as a small business owner, or when you're doing a side hustle or something like that, let's say you're a dog walker. You might think, oh, I can't acquire businesses. Yes, you can. There are many other dog walkers out there that do not want their current book of business, or they're sitting on a list, a goldmine of clients, and they're getting out of the dog walking game and they no longer want those clients, go out there and buy them from them and like post an ad online, post an ad on Craigslist, meet other dog walkers. That's a way to acquire business. There are many, many different ways of acquiring very small businesses. And so often as small business owners or CEOs or startup founders, we think, oh, we're too small to start thinking about acquiring businesses. No, 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 no. You're never, ever too small to think about acquiring a business. Your definition of what constitutes a business might not include a really, really small thing or an article or a book or something like that. So one of the things that we've done here is, you know, we're at Mission, we're a story studio. We create podcasts, we create original content, but ultimately we have a back catalog of dozens, arguably hundreds of different ideas and stories that we're working on. And we've recently started acquiring stories from other people. So we've recently started to talk to other people, figure out how can we acquire the rights to produce your story in this type of format. And in a way that is acquiring other businesses. It's making a pact with the founder, with the creator and saying, I think I can help you get way more money for this asset that's basically dormant. Here's how. Yep. I was just going to say, going to a business owner, whether it's that dog walker, whether it's another business in the media space, any kind of business finding, what can you take off their plate? They don't enjoy doing. So for the dog walker, you know, they might not be interested in continuing to run their business because they don't like having to go out every single morning. They love the afternoon walk. They don't want to go out in the mornings anymore or another business. Like they really don't want to worry about creating content and figuring out how to get it out there. How do I get my article out into the world? I'm making all these great books and I'm writing them and I have no idea how to actually get broad distribution of them and get people to read them. And like figuring out what that person needs and how you can help them. It's not always shutting the other business down. It's sometimes saying, hey, I can actually help you with this stuff and I'm an expert in it. You've got, you know, the great content. You've got the book of business of the dog walking clients. You've got this, come under my wing and I will help you and we can work together to build an even bigger business together. Definitely. And I think there's a concept in cryptography and the crypto space 
called forking. And for small businesses, you need to be thinking about forking. As a CEO, you need to be thinking about, okay, we've done these things. What would these systems and this IP and this, uh, you know, the work that we've done, who else would it be valuable for? Because you might be sitting on way, way more assets than you realize. And other people who want to get into the media space, but don't want to work as hard, perhaps maybe you can offload or sell a lot of the intellectual capital. Maybe you can package it in a, in a way where other people will buy it from you. The opportunities are endless. They're only going to be limited by your creativity and you can't think small. Whatever size you're at right now, whether you own the business or whether you're working for it, there is a way to acquire other businesses and other operations and and bring them in. And there are often ways to do it where you don't have to worry about money up front, where you can structure the deal so you have an earn out or you have some requirements that need to be hit to keep both parties incentivized. And, and this for me, this, this is really fun because you're ultimately getting to the root of how do you figure out how to collaborate with people, not, not even collaborate. How do you figure out how to play a game with people that both people want to play? And that's really fun. So game design is, it's not limited to just board games or video games. Like you are the game designer in your business. And part of that is like it, you might want to consider having more of an open source business where you can more easily pull these other businesses, individuals in a lot of people too, like they might be a very entrepreneurial person. Maybe they're not going to work for you forever, but maybe they do want to work with you on a specific project or a business venture. Maybe you incubate it inside your business before launching it, before they go out into the world again. So their opportunities here are endless. The next one we want to talk about is issuing dividends. Uh, this is something I don't recommend. I don't think you should ever do. And actually in, in the outsiders, they, they basically say the same thing. It's a, a habit. It's funny. It's on their five point checklist then. It's, it's but then basically, they say not to do it. uh, it's just like the five traditional ways. And there are many things that fall under those ways. But historically, if you look at the CEOs who have issued dividends in the public markets, it never, never works out well. And there are a lot of people that like the idea because I mean, who wouldn't like the idea of you just sit back and you just get a check each Sounds like month. my grandpa. His original <laughs> investing advice was, Steph, you pick the stocks that'll issue dividends and you'll be set. And I did it. And I was like, you know, I don't know, six years later, I'm like, well, I haven't really gotten any returns and the dividends are like 10 cents. Like, grandpa, what are you talking about? <laughs> so <laughs> maybe it works for some people. It didn't work for me. I'm not an, it's you know. pretty hard as a CEO to innovate or invest in R&D or improve the product or invest in marketing if you're giving all your money away. Yeah. Super tough to do that. Can't really serve anybody if you're just giving them capital. You have all to right. use that capital to create technology that allows you to do more with less. Yeah. So let's and skip issuing dividends and then go on to the next one, I'm thinking. I was trying to skip it. You, you just well, kept I just holding skipped on to it. For it. You. <laughs> you're holding on to it. <laughs> so, so the next one is uh, paying down debt, which sounds like a uh, no-brainer, but debt is something that is uh, very controversial for many people. It elicits strong emotions. And there are a lot of people who think that they say stupid platitudes, like you shouldn't have debt. Like, no, you should figure out how to use debt because debt is how you are measured in business. Your ability to take on debt and then repay it is a sign of your credit worthiness. And when you enter into those relationships, if you just view it as like, oh, I'm going to get a car, you're going to lose. But if you view it as this is an opportunity to show how I handle a $30,000 loan and how I repay it. And after that, guess what? You're going to qualify for a bigger loan. And if you can generate a return on capital that exceeds that interest, you should always, always take the debt. 
should yeah. always do it. And I think it's also so freeing to take on debt and pay it off and be like, wow, okay, I can do that once. I can do it twice. And then if you yeah. ever get into a pickle down the road where you're like, man, you know, certain invoices are coming in a little bit late and it's not that I'm having like business like issues. It's just that I'm waiting, you know, for two more weeks and I can't wait two weeks for, for money to come in right now. It's so freeing to be able to realize I can take a small amount of debt because I know I can pay it off. Sure. And being able to think that way just really helps, at least in my case, think about how we grow the mission, not having to worry as much. And I think it's something that a lot of people shy away from. They shy away from ever even thinking about being able to take on debt to meet certain payments and stuff that, yeah. I mean, to me, as long as you have a sound business and you understand how you're taking it on, what's coming in, I mean, as long as you understand your financials, it can become really freeing to be able to take on little bits of debt here and there to help get to that next level, especially and, and if you can realize that. how yep, how you can build on it. And, and be, the thing is too, you're building relationships. So it doesn't have to be with a traditional bank. It has to, because ultimately all these are with people. So some of the different things and different ways that we've gone about this is traditional large bank loans are very difficult to get. You're not going to get them typically if you're, you haven't been in business, you don't have a track record of over a year of what you can do basically given the resources at hand and stuff. Now that we have opportunities are opening themselves with traditional banks, with very large financing sources, and it's very exciting, but we did not always have those opportunities. We had to start at a place where we were working with smaller companies that all they did was basically like small business loans. And we used those we used convertible notes with investors one of whom we paid back and we took family also, and friends money at which we yeah we paid back. all that back and we also have structured a great relationship I'm, I'm really excited to continue to expand that with a multi-generational business that is in the bay area but this is a great example of this business has been around for three generations They've managed to keep it alive and going. Do you know how difficult it is to do that? The average life of a Fortune 500 is, is what, 15 years and falling, arguably? And now we have a relationship where they made a, a great interest on the loan. It helped us out a ton. And one word of caution and word of warning here, when you have a small business, there are going to be a lot of people who want you to treat it like a small business. They're going to want you to think smaller and smaller and smaller, and they're going to want to remind you continuously of any movement you make to start acting like a real business, a rapidly growing business, or any move you make to emulate some of the most successful capital allocators in the world, i.e. Warren Buffett or uh, Henry Singleton. Bet you didn't know that name, uh, but there's a whole host of these people whose names are not generally known that you're free to emulate. When you start to emulate them, when you start to talk about taking on debt in a business, it makes people super uncomfortable. So you have to get smart about not bringing this up with people who are not savvy about business. There are so many people that are triggered by this that, you know, I can remember bringing up the fact that like we were taking, I was going to take a uh, six figure loan out and the person like they were asking what, what I was doing. I, I didn't even want to talk about it. And I was like, yeah, it's going to you know, be like a six figure type loan. And here are the, the terms. And they were starting to ask some more questions and they were went into panic mode very quickly. And it was just, it's, it's sad. And I reminded them, you know, Hey, like our accounts receivable, like we have close to seven figures of accounts receivable. It's going to be okay. Like this is a, trust me, trust me, this is a smart business move. We need to build up our business credit. And still it didn't register with that person. But I think that's a good reminder that you don't need to tell everyone everything. I mean, I've definitely gotten in the habit now of holding back information on 
a whole spectrum of things and only coming forward with it if I think someone can actually help with it because they're Definitely. an expert in that area. So whether it comes to, you know, job related stuff, business related stuff, friendship stuff, like, do I look up to that person and think that their advice is going to be helpful? Do they have enough expertise in the area or do I admire what they're doing or do I admire their relationships they have? Is there something they have that they would understand the problem that I'm coming to them with? And do they, will they have a good educated solution? Where oftentimes, you know, when you're talking to people about a whole wide array of things, they don't have enough experience and they're just saying things that they've heard on Shark Tank. They're saying things that they've heard in the news before mm-hmm. and it's nothing that's really that well educated. So I've kind of gotten in the habit of holding back when it comes to wanting to discuss problems and being very selective about who I'm choosing to talk about those problems or solutions with. Same. And I, I think that's a it's a great policy. But at the same time, you can be open about things until people show you that they don't really want to discuss. They don't really want you to grow. And that's completely fine. So final point here is there's three alternatives for raising cash to repurchase stock. So the fifth way here to deploy capital is to repurchase stock. You can tap into your internal cash flows to do that. You can issue debt or you can raise equity. And that's that's really complicated. And then the next two episodes, we'll talk about questions that you can think about to ask investors. And you're going to get a lot of insights into strategies you can use, basically. The one thing I really want to point out here is that there are a lot of CEOs that you are familiar with, that you've heard a lot about. So Jack Welch, the uh, CEO of General Electric, is one that comes to mind. And when most people think of like who is the most successful CEO, and he did achieve a compound annual return of about 20.9% over his tenure. So that's uh, incredible. It's fantastic. But at the same time, it doesn't even come close to the return that people like Henry Singleton have made and the seven other people that are profiled in Outsiders. Why have I not heard Henry Singleton? Who was who that again? All right. So Henry Singleton was many things. He was a mathematician, played chess blindfolded. And so right out of the gate, you're Did thinking- Did he win? Like, Did he win though? I, I mean, that it, it doesn't say. So that's a great uh, bio tagline for anybody out there that's looking to improve their biography. Like, just, you know, put on a blindfold, take a couple of pictures and boom, you're uh, yeah, a potential played prodigy in the making. Blindfolded. <laughs> I haven't yeah, played that in a not, while. <laughs> uh, playing beer pong blindfolded oh, not, not the best uh, credential. But I mean, oh, you could try. It might be. You could try it. We could test. We'd do an A/B test on that. So, during World War II, he developed a technology that allowed Allied ships to avoid or be less susceptible to detection by radar, basically. And he formed and got a conglomerate started. It was kind of like the internet stock of the 1960s, and instead of doing traditional things at the time, he aggressively repurchased stock, which was one of the things we talk about. Eventually, he would buy in over 90% of Teledyne's shares. Teledyne is the conglomerate that he was operating, and he avoided dividends. Good man. Emphasized cash flow over reported earnings and ran a very decentralized organization. So what's important to point out here is that Jack Welch, when you compare for all different variables, Welch outperformed the S&P 500 by about 3.3 times over his tenure at GE. So that's undeniably like he's a great CEO. He's beating the market. That's extraordinary. And we recognize that achievement. However, Singleton outperformed the S&P index during his tenure by over 12, 12 times. So that, that is like for anybody that's 
proficient with math, you know that that's not even in the same zip code. It's not it's not even close to being the same thing. But do you think it's because people could understand what Jack Welsh was doing more to talk about it where Singleton, he was doing so much to get those returns. Like he was investing in so many different areas. Absolutely. Like maybe so, that's why we haven't heard of, I haven't heard of him. Maybe a, you have. Absolutely. Me. And I well, I didn't I had no idea who he was before this book. And as I'm reading through these different examples of people, you're you're wondering, you know, why have I not heard of this? If this is the single metric that people in business and the best people are going to use to judge me, why have I not heard about it before? And that's where you get into territory where it's like, how about some financial education? How about we stop exploiting young people? And but anyways, back to the point at hand here. The point at hand is the outsiders tells the story of how these people did it. And it is generally the it's generally four of the strategies we we went over. It is they didn't do dividends. Occasionally they would do it, but they all the CEOs profiled either didn't do it or they ended those programs. And another of the uh, CEOs that I think is a fascinating example is Catherine Graham, who inherited the Washington Post. She was, I believe, in her early 40s. She was a mother of three, never been in business before, ever. Guess who she found as a mentor and guess what she did? Singleton. Buffett. Oh, darn. That's a great guess. <laughs> and uh, she didn't get that mentorship right away. But eventually she partnered with Buffett, I think, who bought uh, some shares in the Washington Post. That's a great strategy there where you raise a little bit of equity with a partner and with a mentor that's going to add incredible value. And then she proceeded to trounce everyone from a capital allocation standpoint over a long period of time during her tenure at the Post. And then you can say like, oh, well, the Post was like sold later for peanuts to Jeff Bezos and stuff. But that's not the important thing is like during her tenure, she kicked butt. And during the tenure of all these CEOs, they did it by following these principles. Man, we should do an episode of the story on her, huh? Yeah, yeah, we definitely should. I think uh, we could should fit that in for next month if we can yeah. for Women's History Month. Yep. And the final thing here, for anybody that's working at a business, it can feel like, well, I don't have any control over all the things and the capital flows and the cash flows that are in the investments and the R&D and stuff. You might not have control right now. But you might be shocked at how easy it is to start influencing those decisions by starting to understand and break down what is your salary. I think this is what stops many, many people from becoming a part of a business or starting to own some equity or starting a, a business with the support of your existing business. Maybe your business that you're working for right now is your lead investor in your new venture. There's so many different options here that often people are blinded to because of the nature of the CEO job. So CEOs are typically getting hit up for money. They're typically dealing with all the bad things in the business, all the, all the really big challenges and stuff. So going to them with an ask before you fully understand what is your salary? What are you doing for the business? How much does it cost to actually pay you that salary? That might shock you, especially in an environment where you know, offering benefits or taxes and things like that, where it's yeah, very coming aggressive. from someone who runs all the payroll for our company, I think it is hard to actually understand that as an employee, how much goes into hiring someone and paying, especially if you're offering benefits. Sure. All that kind of stuff, the taxes that go into it, all the different insurances that you have to pay. I mean, there's so much stuff that is on top of just the salary. It's crazy. And I love the idea of looking at what you're making and actually analyzing, okay, my salary is this. And they're probably paying X on top of that just for all the insurances and things like that. And X on top of that for maybe benefits if your company offers that. So how can I operate at that level to deliver that much value times, you always have a percentage, 
Like you should be delivering X percent yeah, of it's your unique. salary. Yeah. And it's unique for every business. So I, I, this is where the challenge is to explore it yourself and don't take for granted. There's so much content that floats around about like you're stupid if you work at a job. It's basically it's it's a repetition of that same thing. Nothing could be further from the truth. Working in a team is like we talked about earlier, the only way where you're going to be able to get exponential returns on your time and for your your efforts, for your labors. If you go out and try to be a solo entrepreneur, that's fine. But your ability to earn is going to be severely, severely limited. And besides, too, with that negative mindset, you're not going to fully explore the opportunities you have at hand. There's a famous story about Acres of Diamonds. It was the founding story of what became uh, Temple University, I believe, that started their endowment, where the founder of Temple University just went around the country giving this speech over and over and over again, where he told the story of, there's a bunch of variations, but basically there's a diamond farmer who buys this diamond farm and he's the game plan is he's going to get rich. He invests all his resources into it. He starts mining it, comes up empty. He makes some money here and there, but there's no home run success. And eventually he gives up. He goes elsewhere. He starts trying to mine all these other diamond mines and comes up empty handed. As an old man, he retires to his farm. It's his only asset. And lo and behold, there were more diamonds just like right past the point at which he stopped digging. There's variations of the story, like three feet from gold is a great one. And the point here is that maybe you aren't fully aware of the opportunities that are very close to you. So before you leave, explore that fully, get involved in the discussions, get involved in the conversations, start thinking about like, am I a value add for the company? How could I deliver more value? Maybe you're, because a lot of people who are in a job that don't like it, they're justified in not liking it. They're justified in maybe you're not making enough money to comfortably live and support yourself. But before you start to think about blame, start to think about, well, what are the actual economics of the situation? Find them out. Ask your manager. Ask your boss. Uh, If you're in an environment where you're not even supposed to talk about this and where you're not uh, allowed to ask these questions, that is when you can uh, start to think about leaving. But when you're doing it in a respectful way where you're delivering on all your work, you're you're doing stuff on time, you're going above and beyond, and then you want to have that conversation... The best managers, the best CEOs, they're going to they're going to love you for this. They're going to love that somebody is starting to be compassionate towards them and instead of treating them like a bank. And that type of compassion goes a long way because that is the empathy and compassion are the starting point of long term partnerships of partnerships. They're going to lead to great capital allocation and great returns that exceed the S&P 500. Yep. And a lot of employees aren't looking for that problem to solve. They aren't looking for what is actually going to move the needle at my business or at the business that I'm working for. Yeah. What are the, you know, the OKRs or the metrics or the th- the KPIs that my manager and his manager have to meet? And how can I make sure I'm involved in those and pushing those past the finish line? Because if you're targeting those high level, really important goals, you're only going to get paid more. You're going to become such yep. a valuable asset that they will not let you go. And just for a fun stat that I just thought of, they're at a very, at a big company. I heard that the salesperson there if they don't close like a million dollars or more a quarter, they're out. And I don't know if that, that seemed like a lot to me at first, but then again, you're like, well, there's a lot of people who are obviously willing to, you know, to figure out what it's worth to hire them. And that person as well knows I need to make X amount of money for the business to stay here. Mm -hmm. And so figuring out what those metrics are of like, what is the company expecting from me? What do they need for me to value my high salary? I mean, I'm sure these people have very big salaries, but what are the metrics that I need to hit to make sure I'm a value add to the company? 
really good thought process and like a way to start thinking about the job that you're at and how to make it an even better experience for you. And that's where the learning that is uh, going to be incredibly valuable to you. That's where it's going to happen. It's not going to happen at business school. It might not happen at a course. It's going to happen in the real world where you have real relationships, where you're at the front lines of business of, I don't want to call it capitalism because it's not, it's only, you know, the current regulatory environment, the current variables and everything like the front lines of commerce and trade between people is really exciting. It's it's harrowing. It's what brings out the best or the worst in people. And the closer you can get to the front lines and you can get out into the field, the closer you can get to customers, the closer you can get to the executives inside your company and figure out how do I help them, the better you're going to do. There's a great I can't do Zig's voice, but Zig Ziglar is famous for saying like, you, you can, actually can do Zig Ziglar's <laughs> voice. Don't be shy, <laughs> but you can get everything you want in life if you help enough other people get what they want or something like that. But the point is here, help other people and don't go about helping them with a, a miserly mindset. Go about helping them with a, a mindset that there's a 80 trillion dollar global economy. There's no shortage. There's no, no shortage whatsoever. You are allowed to study that market, study your business, study the local market, the niche you're in, and then figure out how do I divert these cash flows? How do I bring them to me? How do I set up shop? How do I put up a product? How do I help my business sell in a way that expands the pie for everyone involved? Start and remembering like that, that you're going to be an anomaly if you're doing this. So the There's majority no competition of people for you. Yeah, around you, you said we're not allowed to use the word competition. So I actually great reminder. actively avoided using that in my head. But... <laughs> Oh, I stumped you. No, no, you didn't. You didn't stump me. I'm just, I'm, I'm, re- I'm reveling in the moment where we, we do need to like eliminate that, that we do need to eliminate well, that. I'm mindset. trying not to say it. Okay. But you're, there's very few people around you, especially in the workplace who are going to be doing this strategy, who care enough to implement this strategy. Most people, they go there, they know their job description. They know the certain metrics that it takes to just get promoted, but they're not going past that. They're not figuring out the higher level goals or what their like executives need and drilling down to that to try and figure out how to be most impactful. So you will be an anomaly and there's not much competition around <laughs> you that you even have to worry about. Yeah. And there's a story from Warren Buffett's partner and right hand man, Charlie Munger, where one of the first people that he hired that went on to become one of his executives or maybe the CEO of one of their Berkshire's portfolio companies Munger gives him his first paycheck and the guy looks at the his the stub, the pay stub, and sees all the uh, places taxes have been taken out basically for social security and uh, income tax and a bunch of other things that may or may not be constitutional. That's a oh subject gosh. for another day. It's a whole um, other wormhole, a Chad wormhole. But anyways, he goes back to Munger and gives him cash for the amount of new taxes that he had to pay him. And so that, the amount of taxes that Munger had to pay on his behalf for hiring yeah, him, yep, got it. Yep. And he, he pays it back out of his first paycheck. And after that, they're like, that's Munger's boy from, from there on out. Yep. And this kind of reminds me of when my, so my mom's a teacher and the way she first got her job was she said, I will work for free for a month. And then if you like me, you can hire me. And if not, no worries. Like we can just cut ties and it's okay. I love And it. I love that mindset. And that's how she always raised us. Like you go to that person's yard in the neighborhood and you start raking their yard. Like we lived around a lot of older people and you start raking their yard and then go to the door and say, like, I did this a fourth of your yard for you. And if you want me to keep doing the rest, I would love to. And, you know, I'm accepting anything. I mean, she at that point 
said, accept anything you can, which was, you know, obviously after that, I'm like, okay, now I'm worth this much. I do a very <laughs> good yard raking job, people. But it was just a good mentality to get into of like, yeah, how to just start helping people and knowing that even that person who would be hiring me to rake their yard, they're taking time to watch over me, to make sure I'm doing a good job, make sure I'm not being like a little teenage delinquent. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that they're doing on their end. It's not just me giving them a service, even when that service is free. They're still working, you know, in some capacity. So I love that mindset of how do you help the employer first to make sure that it's beneficial on all sides. Definitely. And that type of mindset is not going to go out of style anytime soon. So in next episode, we're going to be talking about how do you choose investors and what are better questions that you can ask yourself to get the right investors. And we're going to start with an unknown story about how Bill Gates chose one of his venture capitalists, dun, dun, dun. which might be a trick question in and of itself. Stay tuned. Mission.org is a media company with a daily newsletter, network of podcasts, and brand studio designed to accelerate learning. Head to Mission.org to get award-winning podcasts like The Mission Daily, The Story, IT Visionaries, Education Trends, Marketing Trends, Future of Cities, and more. Mission Studios has worked with companies like Salesforce, Twilio, and Katera, to create custom media channels that drive results. Make sure to subscribe to the mission's daily newsletter at mission.org. Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.